Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we talk about entrapment, it's just Sarah and me. Uh, We talk about why this 1999 caper film was one of her favorites when she was a teen. It stars Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones. We get to the bottom of that. Uh, And if you're new to this show, you should know a couple things. One, You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is a show where we talk about a movie, you know, we'll talk about it critically here and there, but really we talk about the feelings it evokes, we talk about uh, what it makes us think about with regard to our relationship to and with the world. Uh, We use the movie as a framing device about who and how we are in this world. That's what we do. And the other thing you should know is like, usually these are kind of tightish episodes, but because this is our last episode of 2023, before we enter into 2024, I cannot believe by the way, that these are real years, but because this is our last episode of the year, we are a bit leisurely with regard (laughs) to this conversation and, uh, and how it plays out. We, we, this is a meandering chat. So if you're like, I am a entrapment super fan. I really hope these people take this conversation very seriously. We do take the conversation very seriously, but we do uh, take a couple of detours along the way. We picked this movie because it is technically a uh, a New Year's film. We get that theme throughout. It's part of the plot. You will uh, you'll see. If you're not familiar with this movie, you will hear us tell you what it's all about very soon. I'm one of your hosts, by the way. Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. How are you doing? What's going on in your world? Let us know on the various social media channels at You Are Good or You Are Good Pod. We would love to hear from you. How are the holidays? How's your heart? What's going on? Uh, And you know, we're in the middle of it. We're about to cross over into a new year. And uh, while all that is happening, I hope that you do not forget that you, my friend, are good. Last week, last Thursday, specifically, I went to go see The Iron Claw in the theater, and then uh, I liked it so much, I saw it on Friday, the next day. I don't, I can't recall the last time uh, that I've done something like that. I love this movie so much. It has so much to say about uh, masculinity. It has so much to say about grief and the void of grief and what that can do to us. I loved this movie. Tremendous performances. Can't recommend it enough. If you were a fan of the Why Our Dads era of You Are Good, this is a movie for you. You Are Good, I should let you know, is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. We couldn't make the show without that support. So thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. You help get everyone paid. You help make this a job for a handful of people. And we appreciate that you do that. Uh, That's why we have a show. And in exchange for your support, you get bonus episodes. We have a new bonus episode coming out about In Just Like That Season 2. It's a continuation of our uh, In Just Like That Season 2 episode from a few months back. So that, you know, you just get basically a minute for minute detail (laughs) of how that fever dream of a television show plays out. This one is super fun. Uh, There's Miranda Zickler who produces the show and uh, and Sarah and me and we had a blast. So check that out. It'll be out uh, any day now. 
Hey, if you, uh, like me, are looking for actions to get involved in calling for ceasefire, uh, get in touch with the folks at Jewish Voice for Peace. This is what I have done, uh, and I found actions in my neighborhood. I linked their actions page in the show notes. So if that appeals to you, go ahead and check that out. Just so you know, we are taking the first week of 2023 off. We will be back the week after next. And uh, I think that's all you need to know before we dive into this episode about entrapment. So uh, enjoy yourselves. Avoid the lasers on your way into the episode proper. That'll make sense in no time at all. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. <laughs> or as we say in Scotland, Piper down, we have a Piper down. I am excited. Yeah. Very specifically because this is a movie. No one else is excited. No one else knows what this movie is, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited very specifically because this is a like a formative movie for you. This mm-hmm. is a movie like you spent a lot of time with. And I can't wait to understand way more about that. Because is your first question like, why? <laughs> That's a huge one. And then just like, what, a, I can't, what are we talking about today? I love it. We're talking about entrapment. The, is it 1999 or 2000? Uh, 99, I believe, because it's predicting the, it's like talking about the anxiety about the bug. Right. So they wouldn't have done it right after. That would have been nuts. It's my favorite movie. I don't know when it came out. <laughs> Indeed. I'm going to try. I'm going to do as much Connery impression as as I can competently because it's really an endurance game. You know how you know what I think is that when Harry Styles was in talks for taking over the male lead and Don't Worry Darling, they were like, can you do an American accent? He was like, yes, but not for very long (laughs) because he only does it in the real world scenes. And then they show that he like chose to have Chris Pine make him British. That's smart. That's how you work around that. I love it. That is. That's smart. That's good directing. That's what Stanley Kubrick should have done with Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon. R.I.P. Ryan O'Neill. Did he die? He died the other day. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, no. Damn it. Like this week he died. Ah, I am having a response to this. Yeah, it's Ryan O'Neill. I've always identified Ryan O'Neill with my dad. How and why? Well, okay. Do you, I'm sure I, I mentioned this on the show before, but do you remember the story about how Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill, his daughter, his little girl, she was like eight or something mm-hmm. when they did this, were co-leads in Paper Moon. One of the best movies ever made. One of the best movies, one of Peter Bogdanovich's best. The thing is, his early stuff was so stacked because he also made What's Up, Doc? Boy, we're really covering Men Who Fuck of the British Isles. <laughs> We sure are. So anyway, that's just all to say that it was like the height of early 70s cinema. Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill not being a terribly strong actor, let's be frank, um, yeah. but with a beautiful face and, and good when he's given the right thing to do, which Peter yes. Bogdanovich did with him. Um, our co-leads in this amazing movie about a father-daughter pair of grifters traveling around, you know, Missouri and I don't know, maybe Kansas or something, kind of the middle of America and the middle of the Depression. Madeline Kahn is there and him kind of unwillingly like coming to love her. Yeah. And it's this beautiful, like bittersweet movie where you're like, wow, 
look at that people growing a dad a dad learning to be a dad <laughs> um and then tatum o'neill won a competitive oscar for it and ryan o'neill was evidently very jealous oh really his little child yes bummer his dear little girl who's who's you know the whole family did a whole lot of other fucked up things you know <laughs> but it's just like it's the irony is too heavy where it's like this is the person your job so clearly is to protect from the world that you've brought her into and instead you're just like making her whole life harder after making the dad movie <laughs> what a complicated situation he's a cornerstone of like the pathos of dads and the thing about my dad is that like and really this whole conversation today is going to be about daddy issues because oh, this is a movie it sure is here's what i have to say alex here's what i have to say i've been thinking about this is this a good movie no maybe debatable and it will be debated is this a great movie yes. no <laughs> <laughs> is this a movie <laughs> tailor-made for preteen bisexuals with daddy issues oh, who sure. <laughs> also have a pre-existing relationship to james bond and we're always thinking what if a lady did that yeah. yes definitely so you can imagine <laughs> i yeah i can totally i can see it and i'm glad i'm not glad that ryan o'neill died well, he was very old and he lived a very long time considering all the illness and tragedy surrounding him constantly and addiction. So he he lived a long time. And I hope some of those years were good years for him and the people who had to live with him. It seems at the end, like it sounds like with what she has said that Tatum might have found a, a bit of peace with him. So I hope that that's the case for both of them. Good old Tatum. You don't know this, but Tatum O'Neill was one in, was in one of the great one off Sex in the City episodes which is titled a woman's right to shoes oh man cannot wait season six well take us take us uh tell us what this is and then we'll we'll go further i would actually love uncharacteristically for you to try <laughs> to summarize entrapment because i i and i can help you with plot points but i really want like what is it like to experience this for the first time because i watched this so intensely as like an 11 and 12 year old that it is like seared onto my soul. I can, what I can do, and I always, it, I will speak in broad strokes. Perfect. Here's what this movie is about, right? There's three sequences. There's stealing a Rembrandt, which is our yes. opening, stealing a big fancy mask with jewels on it from China. Yes. And then stealing several billion dollars from what at the time I think were the two was the highest building in the world, the two yes. towers in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia at Millennium Eve. <laughs> we have, we see some sort of crafty thief and I just want, I'm, I, this isn't hedging. I just, it's important to bring up that my brain in heist movies, my brain in like spy movies, mm -hmm. they don't always connect when it comes to details. But the mm -hmm. we have a, a some sort of savvy thief. This is at the end of the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have just seen by way of the Mission Impossible movies, cool repelling. We love cool repelling. We love it. We love repelling down a high rise. We love high tech spy stuff. And uh, not that these are spies, but these are thieves, but same sort of technology and, and buttons push. But it's like Ving Rhames is in this movie. Yes. It's Sean Connery is in this movie. It's managing to be both James Bond and Mission Impossible coded. And it's also yeah. like, I remember here are like two gay moments from my pre-adolescence, Alex. A, 
when the Avengers movie came out with Uma Thurman and I was like, mom, let's go see the Avengers. And she was like, no, Sarah. And when we like went to the video rental store, I must have been like nine, eight or nine. And she was like, what should we get for tonight? And I was like, I want to rent strip tees. (laughs) She was like, no. (laughs) Wow. I'm glad that you put it out there for both of them. I tried. Yeah, fair, right. Striptease looked so interesting, you know, but anyway. Because it had Burt Reynolds. What was his right. defining? He had like no mustache, I think, in that movie, which was jarring. I don't know. I've never gotten to see it yet. I should rent it to do some healing. You should rent it with your mom. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I don't think that would be great for either of us. I think we're going to watch the Poirot Christmas episode again. Yeah, that's better. So we have a we have a repel. We have a repelling yeah. thief. They scale down a building like 20 floors. It's a specific amount of feet that I almost remember. They're using a lot more precautions than Tom Cruise at any time, which is nice. Yeah, for sure. This is calculated. These are intelligent people who oversee their own operation. They remove the window on this building. They go in. They steal a Rembrandt. They start to do stuff that I immediately have questions about that is answered in the plot, like roll up the Rembrandt, put it in a tube that has an address on it, and then send it through the mail system in the building by putting it in one of those mail slots. Which as an adult who has to use the mail now for business, I'm like, come on. I had anxiety the second I saw an address on a tube. So I was like, they're going to ship it? Oh my God. This plays into the plot. So it's it makes sense. Uh, it's successful. They get out of the building. Next, we see the person who receives the tube in Kuala Lumpur, which this is the first time I've realized that that's two words. Mm. See, this movie's teaching, spy movies teach us so much about the world. Kind of. I've taught, I've been, I've learned a lot. It, it's received by a villain who feels anti-Semitic, also reminds almost exactly of Tom Sharpling, the the person. (laughs) That's that's an interesting two thoughts to put together. I mean, it's funny because my response to this character is like, that Maury Chaikin, I adore him, a treasure of both Canada and the United States. And I guess it's it's weird because like often Jews, actual Jews, which Maury Chaikin is, was maybe, are in roles where you could be like, this feels like an anti-Semitic stereotype, like Elliot Gould in Ocean's Eleven. Sure. Yes, 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 yeah. Which I feel like is a joke, right? right? But also it's (laughs) like there, I don't know, that like to emulate the golden age of uh, tough Jews, is that right? The Jason Diamondism is like, is to be like over the top and like pointing too much. (laughs) And then we got, we got the, as far as like a tough Jewish villain, we have Albert Brooks in Drive. Really? Yeah. And his toughness is so quiet and it's great. Yeah. I do. I have to tell you guys, by the way, if anybody hasn't watched Albert Brooks's ventriloquism routine from the Flip Wilson show. My God. Like if you see no reason to go on living, that's what you should watch. You can. And if you want to see it in a fun package, the Rob Reiner documentary that just came out on Albert Brooks, you get it in there. Nice. Yeah. Because that is like I watched that when I was preparing to do a ventriloquism routine with Chelsea Weber Smith at the (laughs) world's longest drag show, successful Guinness Book of Records attempt. It was (laughs) was very fun. And it's truly one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And I've spent my my life seeking out funny things, you know? So good. The thing that I learned about him in that documentary that really hit is everyone thinks that his start was on The Tonight Show. Hmm. But the reason that is, is he did in the course of two years from 21 years old to 23. Hmm. 
100 televised variety shows amazing appearances and then was like forged in the fire by way of that and then did the tonight show but there was a time in america Mm -hmm. where there were so many televised variety shows this is what we're lacking is variety i agree entirely variety shows are for alex who they're for dumb americans with short attention spans like such as me (laughs) Well, you know what I I learned because I was recording an episode on the Battle of the Sexes with Julie Kliegman, Mm -hmm. which is the tennis match in 1973 when Bobby Riggs, famous chauvinist, was like Billie Jean King, priceless lesbian, greatest female tennis player in America, must play me. And if I beat her, it's proof that, you know, sexism is correct, basically. (laughs) Guess how many people watched that tennis match? 30 million. 90 million. What? Like 30 million felt like a giant reach. <laughs> like that percentage of the country is not on the same page for anything anymore. No. Right? No, absolutely not. And now when something that we should all witness the same way happens, you know, we have so much priming by our different belief systems, you know, the ones that are rooted in reality and the ones that are not, sadly, yeah. we literally see different things. Right. So, I mean, that's why it's like whenever I think you know, some congressperson is acting a specific sort of crazy. It's like they're not. They're performing for whatever, wherever their cultivated audience is. And that's all that matters. And I just happen to see it and I'm not the audience for it. I know we're getting so wildly off track, but it's my movie choice. And so it feels uh, thematic in a way. But like, don't you feel, isn't it weird that like Veep is about, and I know that Washington is still very much this way across the board to the extent that this is accurate. I'm sure that's true. But like, but things feel fundamentally different. And that that Veep is so successful as a comedy for people who are watching in real time a political world where it seems like everything is about this incredibly ingrown, essentially like social circle where everyone is struggling for power and nothing is ever really going to happen. Right. Because it's all about sort of these infinitesimal back scratches back and forth. And the American people are just a complete afterthought to say nothing of non-Americans who don't vote. Right. And that that actually isn't true anymore in a real way. Right. Because we have broken through and it has become a world where things really happen and people aren't held back so much by decorum. But now what they use, you know, that freedom to do is vape during Beetlejuice and... (laughs) say anti-semitic conspiracy theories <laughs> don't forget the hand job what was the hand job they weren't just vaping during beetlejuice they were doing hand jobs during beetlejuice <laughs> yeah, they were vaping during beetlejuice whilst giving a democratic bar owner a hand job oh <laughs> well as long as a democrat's getting a hand job on us <laughs> Anyway, it's just, that's a whole lot to deal with. Oh my God. Well, so this thief. So entrapment. This person receives their uh, Rembrandt. Then we cut to, we meet Catherine Zeta-Jones, who I didn't realize is known exclusively maybe for their aesthetic presence Mm -hmm. and perhaps not their ability to deliver lines. Like I didn't, I, she's a person who I don't think I've ever seen in a movie before. Alex, I was shocked. (laughs) I was shocked watching this movie at how good of an actress I had imagined Catherine Zeta-Jones to be. (laughs) 
she is as I described to Carolyn when she looked in on it. And Carolyn, Carolyn, a big bio awakening movie for her was The Mask of Zorro. Oh my God! I mean, come on. Rightfully yeah. so. You have two androgy uh, characters in a most beautiful way, and they're sword fighting, and she's got those blouses, you know, the, right. with the opening in the front. Oh uh, yes, of course, mm-hmm. and the strings, and so. I could see it being a sweet spot, but I was describing her performance in this movie as someone had cue cards right off on the set and she was kind of glancing up at them and then and then delivering the line without specific contextual affect. That's how I felt about her a lot of the movie. That is, you know, that's a good description. And I guess I'll say, you know, a couple things that like Catherine Zeta-Jones is like in I've believe in this movie and all in the movies of this era not so much in Chicago in my experience because I don't know why but like the stuff around this time is like the biggest smoke show that has ever existed potentially (laughs) you're just like oh my god it's like it's a historic event the level of smoke show this woman is putting out and I feel like it's unfair to ask like incredibly beautiful women to know how to act like a surprising amount of the time they do where they like bother learning and you're like, that's amazing. That's so great that you wanted to learn so many things. But like <laughs> we hire them to be beautiful, you know, and like it's the desire to like, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about acting? Because I think to some extent, like there's some knack for it, but it's also just like it's a craft. It's a trade. Like yeah, You totally. have to learn how to be in these stupid movies and say these stupid expositions. Like Maury Shaken is a great example of this. And that's why he's a character actor. We're like. All of his lines are exposition, but he makes you feel like a person is saying them somehow. I just watched a clip with Tom Cruise talking about acting Mm. and someone had asked him, they were like, a lot of actors kind of like pull from their personal life and they pull from whatever. And you're on the record as saying, you don't like this. You don't accept this. And he's like, it's not that I don't like it. It's like, I don't need to do it. Hmm. And our friend Clementine Ford would disagree because every time we talk about him, she talks Mm -hmm. about sort of how his biography informs this stuff. He doesn't have to know he's pulling from his personal life. But he's like, I pull it. He's like, it's like you look at a kid who has unlimited imagination. It's like all we're doing is like tapping into some form form of that imagination and kind of inventing whatever. Like, that's what I do. And I just think that like everybody who ends up on screen has particular strengths and weaknesses and particular abilities to deliver or not deliver on all of those weaknesses. And they're usually selected to tick whatever boxes they do particularly well. And some people are not selected because they are the best and most convincing actors, they are selected because when they are put on the poster, people are going to come see the movie. Right. Well, and this is why the best and most convincing actors are all at, you know, in regional Shakespeare festivals at this point, you know, because like, yeah, it's, it's about, it's, I don't know it. The whole thing is so complicated. I, I would also just like to bring up, I was reflecting recently that I have bought two really great and kind of life changing paperbacks in my life. And one of them was Casino Gambling for the Winner by Lyle Stewart, the man who published the Anarchist Cookbook twice. Wow, wow, wow. He published it. His company went out of business. He started a new company. And against the wishes of the author, he published it again. And I found it in a big, scary used bookstore in rural Maine. Okay. Obviously, you know, like one of those book barns on the highway. Of course. Where they're like, come look at our mildewed books. Yes. And you're like, yeah. And his two his pieces of advice are it's so great because he's like, this is a gambling book. I won't get into extraneous things. Next paragraph. When my wife is dying in my arms and you're like, oh, my God. But he's known as a great casino gambler and hyped as somebody who knows what's going to happen next. But his only advice is like play Baccarat. It has the best odds. Hmm. And 
keep playing while you're winning and then leave while you're losing. And that really like the hardest thing is that something about human behavior means that when we start losing, we stay because we want to start winning again and then we lose everything and we go into debt. Yes. And that like the one rule of casino gambling for the winner is like walk away as soon as you start losing. Yeah. Which is like no one can do because we we humans operate on sunk cost fallacy. Right, you know, right, that's right. how cults work right. as well. Totally. So it's a very useful book, Casino Gambling for the Winner by Lyle Stewart. And then the other book, I forget what it's called, but it had an introduction by Bob Fosse about how he really valued its advice. And it's a book about how to audition and get the part. It's probably called something like auditioning to get the part. (laughs) And it's like, look, when you go into an audition, you'll be handed like something you have to cold read. You can't create a character out of that. You don't have time. So your only option is just to pull from yourself and perform it, you know, through your experience you have already of being a human being. So do that. Yeah. And I feel like that's true you know, for what little experience I have of it, of acting generally, where like you have to have some kind of like ongoing relationship to observing and connecting with what your experience of humanity is like. And if not that, then like, you know, I mean, like, look at Blake Lively. Sure. Like, can you imagine showing up every week on Gossip Girl and they're like, okay, here are all of Serena's lines. None of them make sense. And she has to say them like she's believes that this is a good idea for some reason she, you know, my my have we said this before on the show is like my description of blake lively's acting flavor is show up like you just ran a half a mile to get here yeah. <laughs> but we never saw you run ever and she's just always like <sighs> <sighs> she delivers everything like she's about to pass out <laughs> yeah she does she looks like she's gone into like really low blood sugar and yes, she's like dan dan I can explain what you saw. <laughs> it's like somebody got this girl an ottoman. It's so true. Well, and I think there's this whole other thing, too, that we're seeing in this movie that we're only five minutes into, if even. We're doing great. Like sometimes what people are asking, particularly in movies like this that are a spectacle. And when we see like a bit of a, I think we see a rehash we see a re-upping in sort of like the the tech expectation and the the spectacle expectation in Mission Impossible in 1996. Like, yeah, that was an incredible fucking and that and that and you know what, Mission Impossible wasn't fair because it was directed by Brian De Palma, who if you gave him like a couple million dollars in the streets of Philadelphia was like, yes, I'm going to yes. make something stylistic. It's going to be incredible. Blowout, by the way, is what I mean. It's like it's like you could direct these movies well. You can make them exhilarating in very specific kind of newer ways. And then Ocean's Eleven is like you can take these ensemble casts and actually focus on chemistry. Mm-hmm. And these are sort of like some revolutions that are happening at this time. Yeah. And then the B team of these movies is like hire people who have high brand prowess and how people know them. So Sean Connery is a perfect example of that. Like you don't want Sean Connery to act. You want Sean Connery to come up and exude, you know, bond sex. Right. He's acting a bit. He's, you know, not actually drowning her. Yes. You know, we'll get to it. Exactly. He's acting. And then Catherine Zeta-Jones is like a fucking absolute undeniable smoke show and she's bringing that and then you get some like ving rames for flavor which is great 
Right. Ving Rhames is really doing a lot of work. He's the bayleaf. So we have, we have, uh, then we meet Catherine Zeta Jones' character who works with the guy who plays the sheriff in the new Halloween movies. And he's also in Con Air. And I don't know anything else about him. Yeah. Will Patton playing a character named Hector Cruz. You feel like something <laughs> went wrong there. I felt like that was an interesting series of choices. They read the screenplay and they were like, nope, not, I don't think we'll be bothering with that. <laughs> Be played by Will Patton, the waspiest looking man we have on. Uh, we we have. So we find out that she is. And correct me if I'm wrong. She is an a, a detective or some sort of agent for an insurance company. Alex, let me tell you, I was I watched this as a kid, and I think part of the reason I loved it so much was because I was like, and I remember watching this on the TV of my parents' friends at the Soviet Island Morage who ha always had a bajillion videos because they loved watching movies and they would like buy videos as they came out. So they mm -hmm. had like a whole video library room, which is incredible. And so I remember watching it on the same TV where I used to watch Mad About You. Amazing. And I was just like, this is what adult life is like in the turn of the millennium. Yeah. The millennium. You know, you have this like fun, punchline-y husband who actually likes you. You know, and Stephen Wright is your dog walker. Amazing. A great choice. And so, yeah, and I remember watching Entrapment and being like, oh, I guess adults have jobs where they just are like insurance, you know, they work for insurance companies and like normal offices and they like, you know, eat Dan and yogurt at lunch and, you know, go home to a cat. But if they ask to, they get to basically go on an unlimited budget with no questions asked to a castle in Scotland to just like do a heist with a guy they have a crush on in order to allegedly catch him. And I was also watching, I was like, Catherine Zeta-Jones is playing the longest game I have ever seen <laughs> for meeting a crush. And that's like, God bless, you know? Cruz, Cruz the, the dynamic is hard to, it's not hard to suss because it's so ham-fisted, but like it, she has been eyeing Mac, who is Sean Connery and who is a master thief. Who's 60 years old. Yeah, right. In her bra, to quote Liar Liar. <laughs> Every time some theft happens, one out of two times she pins it to him. And uh, Hector is feeling a little jealous. Hector says, you've liked him for half of the cases you've investigated. And it's like, she sure does like him. This is the thing. So already I'm having trouble because <laughs> internally I believe the plan is to get close to him and be a part of a theft to catch him in the thievery? And does he think that this plan is that he's training a young, like what, who thinks what? To break it down. Okay. So like, and by the way, I think maybe we should just decide that this is going to be a long episode. It's a special long episode for New Year's. We've already made conservatively 70 pop culture references. I think we should just go for all the marbles. <laughs> so, okay. So she's presenting her idea to her boss, Hector Cruz. And by the way, Bull Patton, I know him most as a reader of Stephen King audiobooks, always does a great job. Oh, of course. Of course. I didn't make that, but of course he is great. Yes. Yeah. Stephen King is running a lovely retirement home for character actors. And I really like that. He is. Him and Stephen Weber, who I saw on stage. What? A couple of months ago. He he what? was one of the voices at uh, Dana Gould's live read of Plan 9 from Outer Space. Him, Bobcat Goldthwait, Lorraine Newman, <gasps> our friend Janet Varney. It was great. What? Wow. I would love 2024 
to be the year. I just want to like, I want to run into Steven Weber at like the farmer's market and like, just like shake his hand in a normal way and be like, Steven Weber, I loved the way you read it. I listened to all 57 hours of it. Thank you. Yeah. And then I'll go away. You would love that. I would love that. Good. <laughs> okay. So Jen, her name's Jen. This is such a Mary Sue fan fiction name, by the way. Your name's Virginia Baker. Jen Baker. Jen Baker. She's telling her plan to Will Patton. And he's like, back when I was at the FBI, we sent two men after Mac. And, you know, he corrupted both of them. And she's like, yeah, two men. I'm a woman. And it's like, yeah. So you're less corruptible by the hot guy who you're into and think about a lot. Yeah, I, I was wondering if this was one of the things that spoke to you as a kid is when she's she kind of Clarice's her she has a Clarice. God, it is like that. Not attitude as in Clarice has that, but like that is kind of what she's selling, you know? <laughs> well, and I guess she is, but it's like, okay, Jen, we both know why you're doing what you're doing, but right, okay, right. whatever. And then he's like, what do you plan to use as bait? And every time I've watched it, even though I know what the plot is, I fully expect her to like take out a pin and whip out her bun and go, me. <laughs> but instead she takes out a Time magazine and she's like, there's this really nice mask from China that there's yeah. going to be an exhibition of. So I bet he wants that. And Hector Cruz is like, great. All right, go, go, go do it. I was expecting the same and was like, this is a stretch, but okay, I'm in. Yeah. You don't need a super strong justification, I guess. But yeah, so now she's off to find Mac. She's off to find Mac. They, it, she finds him actually so quickly that I was like, was this a chat? Was this, this is where I kept getting tripped up. It was like, was this supposed to be a challenge? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I also thought you would appreciate that when Sean Connery is out and about like doing recon. So no one suspects him. I love it. Grandpa dressed. He does what our boy Hannibal does in Italy. Exactly. Right. He's like grandpa at Disneyland. He just dresses like a nerd. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, the, the, I guess without, without getting mired like they are working together and, and this is it's still my question remains does sean connery think that she is a thief that wants to work with him or that she is like a person he can train like what is his understanding of the situation on the front end without getting into what double crossy stuff things he knows well let's get through the story and then talk about who knew what when because I do think that is kind of interesting because like this movie has twists and unlike a lot of twist movies they actually are coherent and not annoying well they're in they're happening throughout yeah. and then it still delivers some end twists that I somehow even though it's in the fucking name right didn't see coming isn't that great <laughs> I think it's because I was like there's no way they could put more twists in here and they did you had so little faith in this stupid 90s movie yeah so like yeah so he's so she's working with him to help steal this mask right yeah she stakes him out he like breaks into her hotel room um, and steals her luggage to go through it. And then he like breaks in again in the middle of the night and 
she's been sleeping with a gun under a pillow and he's like, never carry a gun. You might be tempted to use it. Great advice. We'll come back later, but that's great advice. And then he takes her to his castle. They go to his lair. Yeah. And they have a whole training montage, which I I actually really appreciated this because like often Mm -hmm. we just assume that people are savvy. Right. But he does things like recreate all of the scenes physically that they're going to have to go through in order for them to like develop the muscle memory of going through it. I know you don't want to get in the weeds, but like, well, you know, we're here. Well, yeah, the centerpiece of the training thing is is so important to my experience of this movie, because a there's the scene where like she feels like she's hot shit and she like climbs up onto this beam in his giant like living room. And she's like, I stole the Rembrandt. And he's like, you stole the Rembrandt. (laughs) And she like is doing like splits and like a cartwheel or a walkover or something on this beam, you know, and you're as a kid, you don't really think about how it's edited. And you're like, wow, did they really put her all the way up there? And she's just doing it. And then she like flips off of it onto the table and she's like, it was perfect. Like, ta-da, 10 from the judges. And then Sean Connery unrolls the Rembrandt. And yeah, he's like, yeah, yeah, why yeah. break into the penthouse when the mailroom <laughs> is on the ground floor? Yeah, he's got it. And now and, and now what does that mean for her? Like it didn't get to the guy. Right. He intercepted it and she was selling it to Maury Chaikin to get her like millions of dollars worth of spy goggles and stuff. I don't really understand the cost of technology versus art in this movie. Right. And what she brings to the table is through Maury, she has the codes that are needed in order to get to the mask. Is that right? Or is that later? That sounds right. I don't know. Yeah. So they they each have something that they need that spurs this collaboration. Yeah. And then also famously, as we mentioned in a previous episode, the mask, like to get to it, they have to like go in, like take a boat, like time as you were talking about. Do you want to talk about what they do with like the floor thing? I don't completely understand it. They have like they have explosive charges in air and they're trying to like time it against chimes. And actually, you know what it is? It's an homage probably to uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, sure, sure. Remember where he's like hammering at the floor at the same time as the, yeah. Which at this point had only come out 10 years prior. And it seems like there's a hundred years between these movies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, 80s versus 90s. We got a lot done, I guess. We did. And yeah, so they they have to time how they're going to like blast through the floor to the chiming of the clock as it strikes 12, I think. And then the mask is protected by a grid of lasers. So he has to train Catherine Zeta-Jones to like, she has to put on a blindfold for heist reasons. She has to, it's very important. It's for the heist. She's got to do it. It's not kinky or anything. (laughs) And then she has to like, and I think like the image of the movie is like her beautiful ass, like sliding down under this laser beam. And I think the thing about like being a sex symbol in the nineties is that it was like, how often, if ever did it happen with like the people, the men, let's be honest in charge being like, so we want to make your ass the most prominent image to sell this movie. How do you feel about that? Are you against it? Are you pro, you know, like the whole thing with Sharon Stone and the leg crossing scene and basic instinct is that she didn't know and was lied to about the fact that everyone was going to see her vagina. Oh, They didn't tell her that. So she Uh, was as shocked as any. She was more shocked, in fact, than anybody else, because it was her body that that happened to. My God. You know, and that's and I feel like part of the kind of rhetoric that we're dealing with and the debate we're having consciously or not about like 
OnlyFans and, you know, sex work and sluts online and stuff is the how weird it is to have the means of production for sexy images placed in the hands of the sexy girls. Right. That's right. like never happened before, really. Yeah, absolutely. So it makes you question how, how much more is possible under that. But the 90s were a rough time. So that's the but we talked already about the plus and minus of how the media has changed. Right. So like the plus is that <laughs> right. the means of the production are in the hands of people who can do more individuals who can do more with that and kind of yeah. like at least if you're going to get exploited, you can steer the way that it's going to happen. You can exploit yourself and you can exactly. do it ethically and treat yourself like a forest you're going to manage responsibly as opposed totally. to something you're going to, you know, like raise and just be done with forever or whatever. Precisely. And then the other side of that is there is nothing even close to a broadly shared reality anymore. Right. And so that is the tension. And I miss that. That is the tension. I didn't think that was the trade we were going to have to yeah. fucking make. Unfortunately, that's the one. And that's what the new millennium is about, darling. That's what the millennium you said already, but we I can't believe we haven't said it a hundred times. Ha <laughs> 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 ha. Woo. Woo. <laughs> um, so the ass, the ass and the lasers. The ass and the lasers. And as you pointed out, it's very funny that the museum was like, we can only afford this many lasers. We can't have, we can't add a single extra laser on top of this. We're maxed out. They couldn't just do a wall of lasers. It seems like they could just. <laughs> so this is an important part that you're bringing up because we have this, it's not, it is not quite a montage because we spend some time with these things or whatever, but she tries the lasers, which are simulated by way of red yarn. Very fun, visually dynamic. With bells on it. I love that. With bells on it. She tries it the first time, doesn't work. And he, classic dad shit, mm -hmm. uh, you can take a break when you're good at it or whatever. Like, and it's a classic yeah. dad. Yeah. It's like, give her a Gatorade, you idiot. And then this is where, this is where dad comes home. This is where daddy comes home. She makes it through finally and she picks up the fake mask and she's like, I. And she has three minutes to do it. She's done it in three minutes. It's, you know, pretty exciting. Triumphant. She's celebrating. And she's so, yeah, I, I can do it, daddy. And he says, he's like immediately cuts her down because she didn't press some pressure thing that she was supposed to do yeah. instead of just pick up the mask. And she has a, you know, you don't love me, but it's not quite what she's saying. Uh, she's embarrassed and upset that that's how it's gone down because of like mm -hmm. rightfully his response is so shitty and their dynamic is sexy daughter and sexy daddy the whole rest yep. of the movie <laughs> yep and she's trying to kiss sexy daddy the whole time she just wants to kiss her sexy daddy and it i think that's fine there are a lot of women who fall in love with and marry sexy daddies and a lot of them are happy for their whole lives you know until he drops dead <laughs> or until until he's infirm for you know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's weird, right? Because like that can happen to anyone in a relationship, but it's just like when you, you are signing on for that in this. Yes. Kind of, and I was thinking about that watching this movie, you know, like knowing Sean Connery, eventually I believed I'd have Alzheimer's, which can be a very slow yeah. and painful death for everyone Absolutely. involved, you know, and just like, it's, I think like in any relationship, you have to know that you're like, marrying the sea you know in the sense that you're like <laughs> marrying all the like love and and beauty and like joy that you find but also like the entirety of existence which includes like profound destruction which like if people stay around it's going to happen to somebody 
so well said. Sorry. Yeah, it's so well said. It's so important. It's incredibly important. It is because that, you know, I mean, that is part of love, right? And that's how, you know, like, and if it really like, if we were less kind of ground under a merciless economic wheel in this country, then that wouldn't have to be as quite, it's, it, you know, it, it's painful inevitably, but like more so if you can't afford to give someone a good death, you know? Yeah. Well, fortunately, these people are billionaires. So the, um, <laughs> and that's what we call a pivot. Pivot. So they, they, they learn it. It all works. They go in. They're doing the museum heist. She, he, Ving Rames has shown up. Be, we're like, Ving Rames is here. That's great. He bought her a nice dress. We think that Ving Rames's role in this team is he supplies the technology and also is kind of like their third party muscle, like watches mm -hmm. their back while things are happening. He's also bicycled down from the castle, you know, down the road by the loch. And then gone to a phone box and called Hector Cruz, which Mac has then apparently just taps that phone box whenever he wants to. Mac has intercepted. She, and what has happened dynamically in their relationship is Mac gives her uh, this dress as a present. Probably the first nice thing he's ever done. And it's a cla mm -hmm. another classic dad thing because she's like, no one's ever given me a dress before. And he's like, well, it's coming out of your pay, which is very funny. I know. This is very Jigsaw and Amanda, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The girls just want a daddy with a remote lair where he'll teach you how to do weird heist stuff. This is exactly right. And she, in the least convincing deflection possible, is like, I want to go get you a present right now. <laughs> And she runs down to the phone and calls this guy who wants to fuck her. And <laughs> I love it. It's a great, it's a movie about being a woman working in the 90s, you know? Truly. Just like the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> and they get the mask, right? Oh, yeah. And okay, Alex, we have to talk about the mask getting seen because when I watched this as an 11 year old boy, I was like, not literally, but, you know, emotionally, I was like, yes, this is the best. This is so cool and so sexy and so like, you know, nail biting and tense and cool and tech and let's like Mission Impossible. And I watched it this time and I was like, you could just run through the lasers and grab the mask and have more of a lead because the security guard is like farther away from you than you do if you like do all the work of going through the lasers. <laughs> is there a thing of, do the lasers do something more than call the security guard? Do they like put a cage down on the mask or something? Did I miss that? I don't know if this is the case in, in this, but sometimes the lasers are just an alarm. Sometimes the lasers will like trigger like locked doors. So it'll like right. lock you in or whatever. Sometimes the lasers, have, you know, they have a, a function more than just alert, but. I don't know. I'm going to assume that like the movie explained the lasers in a way that made it more exciting. But like, Sarah, it doesn't. <laughs> but right. It's just we we just got to watch Catherine Zeta-Jones do this again. Yeah. It's fun. Like, we're doing it. We just got to have the laser grid. And then we have the only scene, which I'm like, I don't like that this was in a movie for general audiences that I saw as a teenager, <laughs> which is that he's like. They get down to the boat. She's like got the mask in her wetsuit. She's like trying to get him to like pull her back on. And then he like pushes her head under the water like five or six times. Oh, yeah. He's going to he's like what he's scaring her with a potential drowning. Right. Which, you know, like we used to like we're still doing, I'm sure, with, uh, you know, 
prisoners yes. um, who we suspect of terrorism and therefore are able to detain indefinitely, um, which was something we were thinking about a lot less in 1999, uh, which I'm sure is why people are nostalgic for it. But yeah, and that then she like gets her knife out and holds it to his neck. So it's like, oh, they're at a detente. They're equals. This is how equality works. And it's like, oh, my God, just kill him. Just kill the guy. When someone tries to drown you, you there's not a happy future for you. Not that you should kill people you know don't kill people unless you really have to but like in a movie mm. <laughs> yeah and where does that scene resolve right like because he's essentially like D you're double crossing me what's the deal she's like no i'm not i have another job for you we could make billions of dollars and he's like all right i won't kill you and that's enough and that's enough you're like wow she really fought her way out of that one and that's what feminism is about and the other job is a bank it's a whole bunch of banks that are headquartered in this these towers. Yeah. And I love the way that it, the way that it progresses is she's like, it's a work, it's a bank. And he's just like, cool. And then we go to the next scene and she's like, you didn't think it was a normal bank, did you? And it's <laughs> it's like a bank system they're gonna hack into. There's that all of the info they need to do it is in those two tall buildings. I understand that she's had a really busy year and she had a lot of other stuff to get to, you know, and everything. But like, this is a Christmas into New Year's movie. They're doing the mask heist like on Christmas or shortly after. And then they get to Malaysia to do the bank heist and they have like two days to prepare. And it's like, Catherine, you should have made, made contact with him in February. Yeah. And she's like, your share is a billion dollars. Yeah. And then it's revealed that on the table is $8 billion. And with her $7 billion, she's just going to travel alone, which she's pretending like that's something she's into because she's not into sexy daddy, daddy. No, she just wants to do jobs. But not hand jobs at Beetlejuice, heist jobs. And in order for him to agree to do it in a day, he needs half. Yeah. And he does have a line I love about that, which is, what can you do with seven million that you can't do with four? Yes. Good job. So it's a good question that many people could ask themselves today. And I can't remember exactly why it's presented in the plot that Ving Rhames is turning on this situation. He's, I think Connery is like, we're not going to do the job. And Ving Rhames thinks that he's being double crossed. And Ving Rhames turns Hector Cruz onto this team up. And Hector Cruz gets like, I think, I don't know, like the local feds involved. Yeah. And now they have, while they're in the middle of this heist, they have all eyes on them. They have mm -hmm. Ving, they have Hector, they have local law enforcement. And Sarah, I'm sorry, but you need to describe when they're inside what happens because it is 20 minutes of cascading adventure <laughs> and I don't exactly know what the sequence is. Oh, boy. Um... I wouldn't count on myself to know it either. But basically, like with his day of prep time, Sean Connery dresses up like a grandpa tourist and scopes <laughs> out the towers. The best part. And they arrive camouflaged as glamorous party goers, which is their thing. I love that Catherine Zeta-Jones has all these great outfits. And so basically, <laughs> and I love this detail, Catherine Zeta-Jones has spent five years like making the code or whatever that is going to siphon the money off from the banking computers at midnight and it's camouflaged in the case of Enya's first album her first <laughs> cd which i believe was called watermark maybe it was called Enya. that he eventually puts that bare ass cd in his pocket and i, I panicked my god <laughs> 
like when I, when I robbed banks, we used to use eight tracks. I absolutely panicked. <laughs> it's yeah, it's horrifying. And basically they just like they kind of have to do like a Jeff Goldblum and Independence Day like laptop to supercomputer thing. Yes. You know? Yeah. And then like the alarm goes when Catherine Zeta-Jones like pulls out the the modem guy, you know? What is it? The like, yeah, that. The guy. That's great. The little tooth on the cord. The jack. The jack, probably. And so then the alarm goes off and the doors are closing and there's like a big like steel door closing over the laptop with the CD in it that they have to get or else they're toast. And he's like, got the spana. And she's like, the what? And it's a very funny joke about how British people say different things from Americans. <laughs> but they like do save the CD and they do get out of the room, but then they have to figure out a way to escape. And so they are climbing from one tower to another on the like New Year's lights that have been strung up. And then of course they fall and it's very dramatic and hair raising, but then they do get to the other building, but the bad, whoever the SWAT teams, the guys are closing in. And so in what feels like, I don't know, like a daddy who has grown move, Sean Connery is like, here, take this parachute and jump down the, I don't know, whatever it is. And she's like, you'll, you have to come with me. And he's like, we're too heavy. We'll drop like stones. <laughs> he does say exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> and then they arrange to meet at this train station at 630 in the morning. And he's like, I'm never late. If I'm late, it's because I'm dead. She escapes. She doesn't know what happened to him. And then we have our thrilling conclusion. Yeah. So they meet at the train station and with him. And this is where I was like, whoa, didn't see this coming. With him are Ving Rames and Will Patton, who are feds, right? They're FBI. Well, Ving Rames is. Will Patton has had no clue what's going on. He's just like along for the ride. And he earlier in the movie basically says what is happening is not entrapment. That's what happens when the law enforcement like catch the crooks, which is like exactly. That's what cops do to criminals. Yes, which is exactly what ends up happening here. And I was like, oh, shit, like all of the love. Not right. This is this, this is some real bullshit. And uh, for whatever reason, Ving Rhames gives maybe because of the favor. I don't know. Mac got in trouble a couple of years ago. He's able to get out of less, tr get into less trouble by giving her up and catching her because they've been on to her for a while. Mac has led them to her. They are at a train station. For some reason, the feds agree to give him a minute alone with her mm -hmm. um, to master criminals. Yeah. Well, she's a woman, you know. A minute alone on a train station when a train is supposed to arrive. <laughs> yeah. Bing Rames has been re feeling really burnt out lately, you know. Wait, man. He gives her, he, what does he give her? He gives her the software needed to get the money, maybe something along those lines. Yeah. He gives her like a billion dollars for of walking around money and like a passport and papers and stuff. Yeah. And then gets her on the train. He sticks around. They're like, we'll get her at the next station. They're like, we all have to go right now. They all leave Sean Connery, who is in legal limbo. We know like it seems like he should they should be paying attention. Right. Like the deal was that, that he would turn her in and now she's gone. So like, is he screwed or what? They, they're like, we don't whatever. We can only do one thing at a time. 
probably true of the FBI. And she and he says to her, he's like in a really nice sort of again, like daddy way, like you have your whole life ahead of you. I'm on my way out. That's nice. That's a good point. Gets her on the train. She after they leave, reveal she comes back on the train coming in from from the other direction. She's jumped off the train, gotten onto another incoming train. Mm -hmm. She arrives. They're both alone together. There's a lot of ill-advised. She's on one side of the track and she's yelling to him from the other side while a train is passing. Yeah. And you know what the setup is. We're going to see the train is gone and he's gone. And that's exactly what happens. But then... He arrives behind her because he wasn't disappearing. He was going over to the other side where she is. And they're like, well, how are we going to work together next? Ha ha. Mm -hmm. Entrapment. Yeah. Directed by John Emile. What? Okay. So what? Tell me everything about about you in this movie. (laughs) Well, so I guess remember, I remember seeing this movie. I must have been 11 or 12 and just being like. I love everything about this movie. And I think there was something very novel to start with about like the 90s being very much the era of like, if a woman is really good at something, we have to compensate by showing her being like, like striking out with men or having a like really sad, lonely home life or just like, you know, just being like, I'm incomplete because of how hard I'm working. And Catherine Zeta-Jones, like she doesn't like being alone, which she kind of has to be as a super heist person. And like she gets a super heist boyfriend. But like... I actually love the like sheer lack of character development about her. Me too. You know, and that she just like gets to be like a super thief and that's her deal. (laughs) Right. Like her primary motivation for love is, as you just said, she just doesn't want to be alone. Like that's all that we know about her. Like, I don't know that she loves him outside of any sort of psychosexual things we can sort of attribute from the outside. And that makes a lot of sense. And that's fun. Mm -hmm. But like she's just like repeatedly her motivation is I don't want to be alone. (laughs) Well, and she's been watching him from afar for a really long time, you know, so it feels like she has, yeah, she has ideas about him, but she doesn't know what he's like. Yeah, absolutely. But because it's a movie, you know, that all works out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And just like, I kind of expected there to be more movies about just like single New York women who like wear cat suits and do heists. And I know I had like repeated fantasies about just like being a heister because of that, you know, just like being an art thief or a jewel thief or something, repelling down a building. I was thinking, like, maybe I'm missing something, but I feel like we don't have a lot of big movies that a lot of people see that are just about characters who want to steal stuff. <laughs> not as, Certainly not as much as I feel like we used to. Right. I don't know what has happened with that as a genre or why that feels like it's it's missing. Yeah. Well, it feels like the stakes, because like this is a fun movie because like, The stakes are like, will we get these billions of dollars or will we get nabbed? Which are like pretty high, you know, from a suspense perspective. But like, they're not trying to save anyone's life. Right. And I think like as some kind of a reaction to, you know, our cultural response to terrorism in America, like our movies really became in a big way about like saving people on a large scale. And that was our fantasy, you know, and it makes sense to have that fantasy after something like September 11th. I, I feel like it would be popular like stealing from, because like usually what happens in these movies with the exception of Ocean's 11, 
I don't know. I don't know. Like, usually it's like not personal. It's like we're going to steal it from this like big faceless thing. Fuck the big mm-hmm. faceless thing. But like, fuck Andy Garcia, you know, if anyone. I'd, oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think it was like interesting because it's like Andy Garcia. Like, I would take a hundred movies about like fucking up Elon Musk's life by stealing all of his shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's almost a perfect era for it is heist movies because it's empower. You want them to win. It's empowering. We need the return of the heist movie where yeah. we're stealing from like a rich jerk. Yes. All the rich jerks were stealing from all of them. Yeah. And I guess, you know, and it, I totally bought and really liked for obvious reasons, the love story where Catherine Zeta-Jones like goes and finds the like old James Bond who she's decided she wants to mate with or something. (laughs) And he's like, I can't love you until I administer a series of tests. And she's like, okay. And then she like, you know, succeeds. And I was like, yes, love does have to be earned. (laughs) (laughs) You do have to win the football quiz in order to marry Steve Gutenberg. Yes, exactly. This movie is just one big football quiz. Oh my God. Is this the end of Sean Connery's reign? This is his last romantic lead. Yeah. Yeah. A big budget movie that people spent money to go see where the central romance is between Catherine Zeta-Jones and uh, Sean Connery. And there is an interesting, certainly an age dynamic. There's a like, you admire this person, you're being trained by them, you're collaborating mm-hmm. with them, you're seeing they're potentially saving you from getting in trouble. Like, what? what's happening here? This is a series of choices. Why? Why do you think it works? Well, it didn't work for a lot of people. A lot of people who reviewed it were like, no, thank you. (laughs) This man is 40 years older than this woman if he is a day. You know, it didn't work for a lot of people, which is perfectly fair. It worked for me as a tween. And that's my problem. You know, I mean, did it work for you? No. (laughs) Yeah. So talk about that. But I think, well, it didn't work on the surface. I was never rooting for them, I will say. I wasn't against it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like repelled by it, but I could also just see it as a template working for very specific people. Like it's too specific for it to have done well broadly. Hmm. The like huge age difference thing. The huge age difference thing, the like what she needs from the huge age difference thing. You know, what's interesting is that like there is some amount of age difference that we don't really notice as a culture, right? Because yeah. if you, because we've talked about this, like how in Die Hard with Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia or in Top Gun Maverick with Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly. Like it's really noteworthy. And we did, I remember talk in both cases about like, it really is striking to see a man in a relationship in a movie with a woman who is his own age, Mm -hmm. because we don't do that, especially in these action movies where like to be a big male action star, you need time to build your career. You're like in your forties. No one wants to see a woman in her forties according to legend. And so your wife has to be like the new up and coming, less famous person than you because you also don't want to be upstaged. So it's like there's this thing and it feels like it has to do with the ageism in America where like until a man is like, I don't know, I think Paul Rudd could still be paired with basically anybody and nobody would really be bothered by it because we like Paul Rudd as a country. We're okay with him, you know, and he looks young. Yeah. Well, there's something visceral. I I think you're right. Like Paul Rudd could play that. I think the big thing is how aesthetically evident is the difference. Right. 
Because that's what we're really looking for. And Sean Connery looks like he's 80. Yeah, for sure. And this was a whole, do you remember the thing in the first Wives Club where Goldie Hawn is getting drunk at the Nat King Cole bar because he's just been cast as the main character's mother. He's Monique's mother in the, the movie that where she was trying to be Monique. And she's like, Sean Connery is Monique's boyfriend. <laughs> and he's 80 years old, you know, just like. Yes. That like she's Monique's mother and Sean Connery is Monique's boyfriend. And that that's like. Yes. I don't know that like ageism hits women much harder, but we are an ageist country. And I think that like when we stop imagining men being capable of running around after toddlers, we start to really disapprove of them settling down with younger women. Yeah, definitely. And that's like, I don't know. There's like plenty of good reasons for that. But I think if everyone's over 25, you can just do whatever you want, you know? Uh, so I agree. I agree entirely. But I think where an issue comes up, and it should be noted mm -hmm. that I am in a marriage where I'm 11 years older than my partner. Mm -hmm. I think where an issue does and can come up is already there's a mismatch of a of just like an overall societal power dynamic mm -hmm. and everything that comes with that from pay to expectation to just like the weight of various pressures on you, all of that. And then to have any advantage in perspective that comes with years. Mm -hmm. And I think that this goes both ways, to be honest, from a gendered perspective, like having that difference in years and how that informs decisions and how that informs however many times that you have gone through a particular scenario and landed on like theoretical answers for it versus like the other person might be going it through for the first time or whatever. I think that if there's not a lot of communication about it, that's mm -hmm. where the power dynamic can get weird. Yeah. And this is why really old men can sometimes be the ticket, because then things start yeah, to change power dynamic wise as they become, you know, less physically strong and, and, and firm a little bit. Yes. Yes. You know? Yes. Because then, you know, then the tide begins to turn towards the trophy wife. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Anna Nicole. Um, yeah. And then it's like we get into this interesting area of like, and I think this makes people very uncomfortable, like to what extent we're comfortable analyzing any of our relationships as being like somehow like a barter mm -hmm. and that that like is always true to some extent. Right. Because like we partner with people for many reasons, but partly because like we need help with the things we need to do and the sure. projects we want to have, like, you know, raising children or putting in an HVAC or sure whatever, bringing out the trash cans, especially in a country where there's no support for any of that. Right. So you kind of have to get married or else, you know, you could just die of gangrene. Right. And there are people who've come up with really incredible and interesting ways that it's like sort of like collective, like a collective housing or small community, whatever. There's yeah. all these sorts We're gonna of We're going to see more and more of that, I'm convinced. Oh, for sure. But the way, a way that people have been doing for a very long time that has a lot of fucked up stuff involved in it that people are trying to untangle is a specific form of partnering. <laughs> right. Well, and also historically, right, if you're like... This is covered in the book More Work for Mother, which I love and recommend that like historically, if you're an early American homesteader and of course, plenty of single people did this, you know, often by necessity, but like household chores and maintenance tasks being gendered, like historically was a way of allowing everything to get done. Right. Mm -hmm. And the man will plow the field and 
the woman will bake the bread and both of these are all day jobs. Um, and now, right. and then it became with the industrial revolution, the man will earn the wage and the woman will do all the jobs and be all alone and start drinking, cooking sherry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Start feasting on diet pills. Yeah. Mother's little helper. Right. And one has a freedom in it and the other has a prison. Right. And then the balance shifts because it's like the woman is the support system for the man because that's what capital requires. Right. Right. And is what allows him to not parent his children and not clean his house and not thresh his wheat and not even grow wheat. That's the problem. Men in this country need to be growing wheat. <laughs> That's what I want. And so like if you look at a relationship where there is some kind of, you know, like with what we would call a gold digger relationship, for example, where like there's this balance being struck explicitly between like you are young and hot and I like having sex with you or if not that just like watching you, you know, walk around and I can take care of you financially, then it's like it's interesting. Like we really I've thought a lot of in my work about how we are trained as a culture to see that as icky. And to see the problem as the sexy woman, when really I think kind of what you're saying aligns with what I think, which is that like it's possible for that to be a balanced power dynamic. But what is likely is that the power will stay where it always goes in society, which is with the man. And then you're you're stuck. And the problem is, how do you not get stuck? I mean, if you think about that, that trade off that you're talking about over time, where it's like one is plowing the fields, et cetera, one is overseeing the home, et cetera, over time one of those gendered expectations being the male's the male's job or whatever however you want to frame that went down to being a 40 to 50 hour often physically labor free job mm -hmm. a training camp for coronary issues really <laughs> right and the other job remained every waking hour yes and labor intensive it's a problem right yeah cuz on the farm everybody works and in the office you can get migge to do it <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah. So I guess like with Entrapment and part of why maybe this movie was a gamble that didn't, people didn't respond to the way the filmmakers hoped, like there is an ick for people, yes. you know, and watching it today, I feel like the lack of chemistry is what gets to me. You know, oh, there is. Th that's. Yeah. <sighs> if they had chemistry. You know, totally. but who's Sean Connery going to have chemistry with the man who had like proudly admitted to hitting women, you know, Michael Caine. There you go. <laughs> there you go. A movie where he smooches Michael Caine. So, uh, that's a movie. I think all of this would work if it was just like someone who's just looking for like the acceptance and love of an of an elder mentor. And then he just like lets her go at the end. We do a catch and release. Just like le learns to love her. That would be better. It would be so nice. Yeah, because that is like if you want a daddy fantasy, then like he also has to let you go at the end, right. you know? Right. Not you're stuck with this old man. Yeah. Like, that's when it becomes a daddy nightmare. Totally. Sometimes. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, Alex, I guess what I'm most curious about is like, what is it like to watch the movie that I studied out of a real belief that I would somehow fashion my life into it on some level. <laughs> and this was the most perplexing one. Because <laughs> I don't do any of these things now. We'll often run into things that 
you know, you talk about that you really loved or were sort of like core to you or, and I can really see it. I'm like, I get it. This one, it was a little harder to like knowing sort of what you said at the front end about some of the dad dynamic stuff um, outside of the necessarily maybe the horny connections, but the dad dynamic stuff, I got that for sure. And I like personally sort of picked up some of that stuff, but this one felt like the most like, it was difficult to imagine you at the time seeing the appeal. And so I was looking for these pieces. Like I said, when, when she's like, you haven't sent a woman, I was like, is it the, is it the Clarice Hmm. overlap in this case? Or what exactly is happening here? This, this felt like the most outlying building block of your pop culture lore. I guess that's a relief because what if you were like, yeah, it makes total sense. You're married to an old Scottish guy who's mean to you. So, yeah, you really did it. <laughs> what, what were some other things that had a similar place to how, to what this did in your childhood? At, like at around this age, like the Spice Girls. Oh, sure. Titanic, obviously. Mad About You, Friends. I was just really getting into it this age. Mm. I was like a giant Friends fan at this age. Heist movie with Chandler Bing. That would have been good. I guess that's maybe what the whole nine yards was going for. <laughs> Only ever watched it in French. I, I haven't seen Oh, wow. I haven't seen it since the year it came out. So it's yeah. been, been a minute. I, well, I feel like people often, you know, when we do a, kind of episodes about nostalgic movies, which is pretty frequently, people will often, you know, I think reflect on, oh, I really or I will at least like I I liked this thing when I was a kid and it seemed okay and now we can see culturally that so much of this is like really inappropriate and I think there's often like a feeling of maybe guilt that comes with that and what I would say that I think is you know is also relevant is that like kids and adolescents often are much more generous readers and viewers of things than the original artists deserve, but like that doesn't mean that we're wrong to do it. Yeah. And I think that part of what I loved about this movie was that like this, along with that, like Famke Jansen TV movie where she's a model vigilante that I can't remember <laughs> the name of was like one of the only images I got at this age of like a woman in a cat suit, which is very important, being as competent as a man at something that like men value that there's like She's not falling behind in any way. She's like keeping up with everything. She's training like there's, you know, none of the sort of Kate Capshaw and Temple of Doom about it that you get with with so much stuff. I'm sorry, Kate Capshaw. It's not your fault. You didn't write the goddamn thing. (laughs) And that like she just is like a single woman in New York who has developed independently a career as an art heister. And I think that was enough for me. I was just like so into that and just the the like freedom and the ability. She like has this like rented apartment in Malaysia that nobody knows about. And she's like, here we are in Malaysia. I got an apartment here so I can look at the giant towers that I'm going to rob on Millennium Eve. Would you like to be my date? And just like, I don't know. I like loved that she had made this life for herself and it allowed me to kind of ignore the implications of the fact that we were only seeing it because she was in this dumb romantic pairing with, you know, a guy who made his best action movies in the sixties. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do see a through line in all of the media that with the exception of friends, maybe. And that was just like mm. a, itself a phenomenon Yeah, is in all of the media that you've listed, like 
a major part of each of them from Titanic to this to Newsies and, and others mm. is seeing, well, is specifically Silence of the Lambs is seeing a world where the character who is a woman has like tried to like make a place for themselves outside of the one that is like laid out for them. Yeah. God. The Spice Girls too. I was specifically obsessed with Ginger Spice. Perfect. Why Ginger? I Well, I wrote a short essay for a standardized test in fifth grade about this so I can kind of remember my points which is that she's the leader of the Spice Girls and she's you know Ginger Spice was the one who said girl power all the time like yep. that was I feel like that was kind of her thing so she was like I don't know and that that's just like the kind of like very simple kind of feminism that like eight-year-olds which is how old I was when I got into the Spice Girls like that's kind of all they need you know obviously grown-ups need more but just like you want to own your body, but you also feel this pressure to like cover your body because anyone who sees it will therefore have the upper hand and the, you know, power dynamics that you understand based on what you've been taught often decide who has power when. So the idea that you can like gain rather than lose power by putting on a tube top was like very exciting to me as a, a little preteen and tween and just like... Yeah, all these characters were women who just kind of went out and did things. Yeah. Oh, and A Fish Called Wanda. I love Jamie Lee oh, Curtis sure. and A Fish Called Wanda so much. I remember watching that movie with my dad when I was like 10 or 11, too. She's so great. She's yeah. so great in that. Ugh. And I really thought that there would be more jobs. I really did. More <laughs> jobs for millennial women to work as like the hot ringleader of like a group of less smart men who were robbing banks and stuff. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry it didn't work out that way. No, I don't know. Maybe there are. I shouldn't have majored in English. If that's what you're doing, let us know. Yeah. Alex, <laughs> this is our Willennium episode. Yes. We're coming up on 2024. We sure are. We've already kind of talked about the new year in our Dubs bonus episode, but like, what are your hopes and fears and what do you want to eat in the new year? <laughs> I don't have a ton of hope about what our electoral officials have in store for us <laughs> you know what if i'm being honest neither do i <laughs> our elected leaders where things seem to be going how seriously people seem to be taking the moment who should be taking it seriously etc i feel i have a lot of the anxieties that people have feel around that but what i do have hope in is watching people look at the various fires and scary things in the world it's very I think a lot more people seem to be activated and involved in community-related action, et cetera, than I remember there being when I was younger, which isn't mm. to say it wasn't happening. It's just to say that I have eyes on it and see it being organized and accelerated more quickly than I remember it happening when I was younger, when I felt very alone and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited for that and for the possibilities that come from people looking at bullshit and calling bullshit and getting together to stop bullshit. I like that. Mm -hmm. I am just looking to make more fun and creative and interesting things this year. And I have some stuff in store and I'm excited for that. And as far as eating goes, I'm very excited to challenge myself to make stuff that I'm not otherwise making. I made, I mm -hmm. love, it's such a simple thing, obviously, but I love a chicken pot pie. I haven't made a chicken pot pie in 20 years. <laughs> and I made one the other night and watched a David Lynch documentary. And wow. uh, it was a delight. <laughs> <laughs> the number of people who've mentioned chicken pot pie to me in the last week, it feels like I'm being told I should make one too. What about you, Sarah? What What are your hopes and fears and uh, food dreams? 
Well, I just, yeah, I'm also terrified of what is going to happen in our election. And I'm also annoyed that like, we all have to be tortured by being forced to think about it for like an entire calendar year before we even get to vote on anything pretty much. Um, at least in Oregon, where we just we, our primaries really are pretty unimportant. Yes. And yeah, I'm I'm very, you know, like anyone who's paid any attention to reality. I'm I'm very stressed about politics, but I don't know. I'm just going to take your answer, which is that I, I do think that like the more we get overwhelmed by what's happening on a larger scale than we can affect, maybe the more we can learn as a behavior to direct those feelings into what's immediately around us, you know, or into the things that we can affect, what's local to us in terms of where we are geographically and also who's in our community and what we understand and what we can, what our skill sets are. I don't know. I hope that I guess I want personally for me and for other people, many people are much better at this than I am to just like not get paralyzed by how scary things are, you know, cause that doesn't do anything. Yeah, for sure. You know what I also think is that like when you go and you like buy bulk foods and put them in glass jars and you're like, ha 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 ha, you're not really doing anything for the environment. At least if you do it like, you know, once or occasionally, but you do get this massive endorphin high that allows you to do something else. Yeah. You're like, I'm winning. (laughs) That's how I work anyway. Um, I am also excited to do more weird art stuff. I've been drawing for the past year and that's meant a lot to me. I've been talking with our friend of the show, Candace Opper, about zine stuff because she makes amazing zines and is like a lifelong zinester. She zines. She just, yeah, there's like, I'm lucky to know people who kind of process their lives through art and crafts and just like things that they make. And I feel like that brings me and a lot of other people like real, like tangible human joy. And I want to keep doing that. And I'm doing my drawing every minute of the Godfather project to start. And then what do I want to cook? I mean, yeah, I feel like I have like, really, I have like very few comfort areas. And the main one is pasta, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm just copying all your resolutions. But I I like weirdly, I'm like, I really want to eat less meat, but I also want to learn how to cook meat aside from chicken because I'm not comfortable with any of it. I think it would be very Catherine Zeta-Jones and entrapment of me to just like make a like perfect steak. Totally. Well, uh, this is a daddy-less universe, fatherless universe. Oh, yeah. I forgot about daddies. Well, nobody has relatives in this movie. It's great. She's like the Carrie Bradshaw of of heist people. That's why everyone has all this time. Yeah. Especially at Christmas. My God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Who's who's the daddy of entrapment as far as you're concerned? Is it Ving Rhames? Oh, yeah. Right? It's Ving Rhames. It's Ving Rhames. It's easily Ving Rhames. Why is it Ving Rhames? It seems like this is one of those movies where it feels like some of the characters are in a different movie from the other characters because Catherine Zeta-Jones and Sean Connery are so in their mission. And then Will Will Patton is obsessed with uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones wanting to know what's happening or whatever, and also is into her or whatever. And they're all just into it. And then Ving Rhames comes in almost like comic relief, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, he is anchored to actual reality in some way. <laughs> and he's just like, he had such a fucking fire stretch of movies from 
Dave until the end of the 90s. Like he was in awesome movies and a great, delightful person to see every time Mm. you saw him on screen for years and years. And I think he's like the longest running, aside from Tom Cruise, the longest running character in the Mission Impossible movies. Oh, my God, you're right. He really grounds them. That's got to be my God. That what a gift that is for him. Oh, and he was in The People Under the Stairs, remember? Oh, my God. Wait, was he? He's the guy who, like, helps Fool get into the house. He's the guy who doesn't make it very long into the movie. Yeah, he was in Dave, Pulp Fiction, Mission Impossible, Striptease, Con Air, Out of Sight, Entrapment, our favorite movie, Bringing Out the Dead. God damn. Should we just do, like, as many Ving Rhames movies as possible next year? We should. We. I mean, I would. it wouldn't be hard. He's been in so He's going to come up pretty naturally. Yeah. I know you really like if you were making a blockbuster in the 90s and you just kind of needed to add Ving Rhames. It was poor form not to. Well, uh, happy New Year, Sarah Marshall. Happy Millennium, Alex Steed. Happy Millennium to you, too. (laughs) Millennium 24. Here we are. Perfect. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Miranda Ziegler for producing this episode. We appreciate you. Thanks for editing the episode. We appreciate you. Uh, Thanks to Fresh Lush for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Entrapment, for existing. Uh, Thanks for finding us on social media at You Are Good or You Are Good Pod, depending on which of the places that we're at. Uh, Thanks for getting in touch, letting us know how you're doing. Thanks for not forgetting that you, my friend, are good. Thanks for supporting us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. We appreciate your support. That's how we're able to make this whole thing possible. And don't forget that we're taking next week off. We will be back uh, on the second week of 2024. In the meantime, Happy New Year. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk with you all soon. Bye.